0: study God's words and take out your Bibles. You'll need those here at Calvary Chapel South Bay. Amen. 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 As we continue our journey through Luke's Gospel, as we're now in the final week of Jesus' life, Jesus has been teaching in the temple. He's been specifically in Solomon's porch. He's next to the court of the Gentiles. He, he is there next to the court of women and he's driven out the money changers, and he's talked uh, to a group of disciples. He's ministered to those that are in that area we saw and left off last week with this incredible picture of this one woman with two tiny copper coins, these widow mites, and Jesus says to her as she puts in those two copper coins that she literally gave her life. She gave up her bios life itself. And while this is going on, in order for us to understand the very direct nature with which Jesus is about to speak what is commonly known uh, as the Olivet Discourse, this time that he's going to take Peter and James and John and go just across the Brook Kidron to the Mount of Olives, just uh, less than a quarter of a mile away, maybe through the Garden of Gethsemane, up onto the mountain that's covered with olive trees. Before he does that, he is going to speak to the building that he is standing, you could have thrown a rock, to the temple. Jesus is on Solomon's porch, he's just outside of it, south into the temple mount, adjacent to that is a court, and adjacent to that is the temple itself. And so Jesus is standing next to what the great historians of that day called one of the most magnificent buildings ever built in antiquity. It was started under Zerubbabel, finished under Ezra, it's the second temple. This monumental structure that would have loomed over their head if it wasn't covered with golden plates, it was covered with marble. And so it was this edifice of more than a thousand years of the history of the religion of the Jewish people. Very specifically, the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Jesus is standing within stone's throw of that building. He's going to be asked some very specific questions, the answers to which or the Olivet Discourse, and it is that speaking forth of what will happen during the very last days, the times that we live in today, the end of the age of grace when God finally completes everything that needs to be done before he takes his church home and he begins to deal with sin and death itself in a time that we call the tribulation. So would you join me? We'll pray in a message, two parts, And what lies ahead here in this abbreviated version uh, that we find in Luke's Gospel compared to that of Matthew and Mark of the Olivet Discourse. Father, we thank you that you have filled us in on some of the details of what it will be like to live in the very last days. Now, Lord, we thank you that that time has not come yet and that there's still time for grace to abound, for people to come to know you personally through your son, Jesus. And so we ask, God, that you would speak to us, encourage us, strengthen us, make us alive and well in our spirits to accomplish much for your kingdom in these last days. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 5, here in Luke chapter 21. And then some spoke of the temple. So now you can kind of see, imagine that they're standing virtually right next to it. And how adorned with beautiful stones and donations. And said, Jesus now speaks. These things which you see, what would they see? Well, they're adjacent to the court." of the Gentiles, the court of women, the central court would have been in front of them and the temple adjacent to them. They are staring at the one place that the one true God had been worshipped for a very, very, very long time. The audience is Jewish. The man speaking is Jewish. This is a Jewish message to a group of Jews. And it has implications to us as the church, Gentile believers. These things which you see, that would be the temple. The days will come in which not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And so they asked him, saying, Teacher, when will these things be? What sign will there be when these things are about to take place, there's Jesus being asked directly, when's this going to happen? You can almost imagine what they're saying. like, say, what? They're standing, looking at the temple, this magnificent building that stood almost 100 feet tall, 160 feet deep, about 80 feet wide, shining in the sun, covered with gold, adorned with limestone and marble, and Jesus says there's going to come a day when that building right there is not going to be there. Now to a Jewish person, again, you need to keep this into the proper context. To speak against the temple was the equivalent of speaking against God. That was God's dwelling place, quite literally, to the Jewish people. And in fact, until the Ark of the Covenant was taken away during the Babylonian captivity, uh, some 500 plus years earlier, literally, the presence of God dwelled between the two cherubim on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, where the mercy seat was. And so when the high priest went in, he literally went in, as far as the Jewish people were concerned, to converse with God. That's God's house. And you're telling us it's not going to stand, not one stone will be left upon another? It was the center of Jewish life. You couldn't remove the temple without affecting the life of the Jewish people. And so here is this incredible edifice. They're standing on what we call the Temple Mount today, a very specific portion of it, the part that was enlarged by Herod the Great. And so as is, is they're standing there and looking out, the whole top of the Temple Mount, if you travel there today, is elevated significantly above the time uh, that Jesus was there. But when Jesus was there, it was still covered with stone. It was still this beautiful place that when you looked at it, it's like 500 yards long and uh, almost as wide. Believed to be one of the largest retaining walls ever built in antiquity. Some of the ashlar stones in the bottom of it are almost 80 feet long and weigh over 40 tons. This thing was massive. And Jesus is going, that's not going to survive. They're thinking to themselves, what? Been there for a thousand years total. And as Herod finishes his construction project, which he had not yet done, by the way, it would become this incredible edifice. And they're thinking, you're going to destroy the temple? Here's the problem. And here's where it begins to touch you and me. There are all kinds of beautiful things in our lives that, if we allow them, they can become idols. It's not a bad thing to have money, but can money become an idol? It sure can. It's not a bad thing to have a great education, but can education become an idol? Yes, it can. And while I'm saying this, let me define it for you. Anything that you worship that is not the Lord Most High is an idol. He's supposed to be first, he's supposed to be foremost. For the Jewish people, they had idolized a building. I actually run into people occasionally that still idolize churches. If you travel to Europe, you can see that on full display. If you travel to some of the great cathedrals of Europe, it's like these buildings are insanely beautiful. And sometimes people think that because the building is beautiful that there's a beautiful work going on. That's not necessarily true. Because the building, as far as God's concerned, is You. It's your heart. Where are you with the Lord? You can be inside of the most beautiful place on the face of the earth with all kinds of praise music praying, and if your heart is not inclined towards heaven, there's a problem. And that's what had happened to the Jewish people. They had been delivered by God, they had worshiped God, but now they were worshiping a building. And so Jesus says, Look, not one stone's going to be left on top of another. This thing was monumentally beautiful. If there there wasn't an area that was covered with gold, it was marble. The Jewish historian that was also Roman, Josephus, actually said that as you looked at that temple, the amount of gold that covered it exceeded the treasuries of most peoples. So in other words, if you were to travel to some other place, if you went to their treasury, their banks, so to speak. It's like, imagine that if you were to go to Fort Knox, we used to have the gold standard here in the United States of America. There was supposed to be gold in Fort Knox in the reserves that equal all the paper that we have in our pockets. That certainly isn't true anymore, amen? But it used to be. But imagine that you took all of the gold that we have in reserve and, and covered a building with it. Why would you do that, save that that building was so important you wanted to invest everything you had as a nation into it? That's what the Jewish people did. They said, We're going to give, cover it with gold, make it beautiful. We want everyone to know that our God is inside of there. And Jesus says, It'll all be thrown down. As the Romans come into that region, As Herod's expanded, as he builds this monumental edifice, if you travel there today, one of the things that strikes you is now it's just a wall. There's no building. There are 13 rows of stones from the time of Herod. Above that are the walls that the Muslims came and eventually erected on top of it. And instead of being on top of the temple mount, there's no evidence of Jewish worship up there. They're not even allowed on the Temple Mount unless they're under escort. It's actually a giant mosque, several of them. The Al-Aqsa Mosque is there. The Dome of the Rock is there. The Dome of the Chain is there. Uh, And so all that's left is this outdoor synagogue. This place where every Jewish man is supposed to make a pilgrimage to at least once in his life to touch the stones that are essentially the retaining wall for Herod's temple. Fold up little prayer requests and tuck them in the nooks and crannies of the wall. I've been there a number of times and prayed and stood next to devout Orthodox Jewish people This is as close as you could get today to the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was only about 100 feet, maybe 150, depending on where you locate the temple from that wall. So that's as close as you can get right now. But it's just a retaining wall. It's like you going out in your backyard and going out to your fence that surrounds your Yard and you know, leaning on it and expecting a great relationship with the Lord to come from it. It, it. it is just an edifice, but it's all that's left. What Jesus said would happen, happened, and in fact, this is the southern end. So the portico would have stood directly above right where you're looking. That's where Solomon's porch would have been. But instead, there are Muslim-era walls built in 700 A.D. Multiple mosques. That mosque holds 5,000 people. It's about twice the size of the sanctuary. Those are the homes of Jewish people, completely buried by the rubble, of Flavius Titus when he destroyed the temple about 40 years after Jesus spoke these words. And there has been no temple on the Temple Mount since that day. So for the better part of 2,000 years, the Jewish people have been banned from actually being where the temple even stood and for the most part were only allowed recently in the last 75 years, to even go to the place that is just the retaining wall from Herod's temple. Jesus said not one stone would be left on top of one another. And that is exactly what happened. You can go and see those stones. You can see the pavement of the street below the temple mount, where the Roman soldiers pushed every last stone off the temple mount, onto the street below, and onto the houses below. Why does that matter? Because Jesus is going to now follow up with the Olivet Discourse, this speaking to what would happen in the very last days. And Why is that important to us? Because Jesus was speaking of things that were yet future, and they're still yet future to us today, in large part, almost entirely, in fact. And so he's asked three basic questions. When would the temple be destroyed? You can well imagine as they're standing next to it, they're probably thinking, "Well, not going to be today. I mean, look at the size of that thing." What would be the sign of his coming? Wasn't Jesus right there? What was he going to come and do? What is this coming all about? And ultimately, what would be the sign of the end of the age? Now, I will tell you that this is the abbreviated version. In fact, it's only 20 verses. Matthew's account of the same sermon is almost a hundred verses. So it has much more detail. Mark's is between the two of those. So Matthew twenty-four, twenty-five, and Mark chapter 13. But Jesus speaks some things that they just simply can't get. That's because they were very much in the future. But to what end? What future? Well, it's the future of the Jewish people. It's the future of the Jewish nation. It's the future that they thought was going to ensue in that great time that they were almost in. And it's a time that's still yet future. Because as the Apostle Paul wrote to us in Romans chapter 11, there will be a day when all Israel will be saved but all Israel has not ever been saved yet. Proceeding that, the rapture of the church, this incredible time where the church is taken away. And so Jesus is going to explain what this time looks like. Because the Jewish people ask actually for a sign. They say, What's it going to be? What's it going to look like? And so, Jesus is going to tell them what it's going to look like right before he comes again. Not the first time, he was right there. But the second time, when he comes to deal with what Joel says is how the world is treated the Jewish people. Read Joel chapter 3 and see those three things they divided up God's land. They abused the Jewish people. They were unfair, in essence, to God's chosen. So it focuses on a a time that we call the tribulation. You can find that, by the way, in Revelation chapter 6 to 19. So, And for those of you that don't know, our media library is fairly extensive. You can go on there. We have an entire series all the way through the book of Revelation. It's there. But this time, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. The time when finally God pours out his wrath on this earth. It's one of the things that is interesting to me as I listen to people try and make the case that somehow we're in the tribulation right now. Well, if you read Revelation chapter 6 to 19, there's nothing like that that's ever happened on the face of the earth. If we think this is bad, then that is infinitely worse A simple outline of that time would tell you these things from Matthew's perspective. And I'm going to use Matthew because it contains all of the parts. Luke does not, but it contains some of them. You're going to see false Christs. You're going to see wars. Rumors of wars. Famine. Death martyr, worldwide chaos, and so if you look at Revelation chapter 6, you'll see all of these things. And so Jesus is going to give you all these things before John receives this vision on the island of Patmos that we call the book of Revelation, Jesus says, these are the things that are going to happen. And then John repeats all those things with great detail, having received that as a revelation of Jesus Christ. If you look at the book of Revelation, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not just revelation, or it's not plural revelations. It is the book of revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus said the same thing while he was still here. He didn't give quite as much detail as John gives us. But these things lay out for us really the picture of the very, very last days. And so as you work through the book of Revelation, you see the first half of the tribulation, the middle when the Antichrist breaks this peace treaty and makes a war in essence against the Jewish people. He's joined by the Arab nations that surround him, and then finally just the world comes unglued. But Jesus is going to now speak to that time. And church, this is why it's so important for you to be informed about the world that you live in. Because anyone that thinks we've already been through the tribulation hasn't actually looked at the Bible and what it says. Because it will become infinitely clear that when those times come, lest the Lord shorten the time, Scripture says, no one would be saved. So Jesus is now going to deal with some very difficult topics. Verse 8, and he said, Take heed that you do not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, Here am I. And the time has drawn near, and therefore do not go after them. In other words, there's going to be false Christ. There are going to be people claiming to have a new type of theology that that." somehow provides a way of salvation for people without confessing Christ. I can tell you we live in that world right now. Because there are a lot of false Christs. Uh, People constantly email me with questions about various cults. And one of the most common ones is, you know, I I was talking to these These guys came riding up on bicycles and they had badges that said elder something, and they they wanted to talk to me about Jesus. And I said, Which Jesus did they talk to you about? Because their Jesus is flesh and bone. He actually has elder brothers, that's why they're called elders. It's a false Jesus, it's not God's only son. It is one of God's many sons, and in fact, their version of God lives on a planet called Kalub. And he has a whole bunch of kids. Matter of fact, he's been making babies for all eternity. So you better figure out which Jesus it is that you're talking about. Jesus actually said in the last days there would be people professing to be Jesus. You ever wondered why the Mormon church calls themselves the Church of Jesus Christ and the Latter-day Saints? Because it's a different Jesus. It's not the one the Bible teaches. It's the one made up in the mind of Joseph Smith. And there's a whole bunch of other ones. Jesus said that would happen. But what he's really getting at is this religious delusion would actually increase in the last days. That there would be more people professing to have a new way to get to God. In our day and time, we've seen the rise of universalism. That basically, everyone in the end goes to heaven. And yet Jesus said, that is absolutely not true. He said, men love the darkness and will not come to the light. In other words, there is a real heaven and a real hell, and you have to choose which place you want to spend eternity. But it sounds really good. It sounds kind. It sounds like some place that you know maybe God would make up. It actually sounds very fair and very equitable. The only problem is, is it deals out God's holiness and his righteousness. And so Jesus says... Do not go after them. A second thing that Jesus now addresses is international distress. Verse 9, But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass, but the end will not come immediately. Do you get it? Jesus said man is has some inherent issues. And those things will get worse and worse and worse and worse. Now depending on whose list you look at, we have something on the order of about 198 countries on the face of the earth right now. More than half of them have active warfare going on in them. Somewhere. Sometimes police action, or they're engaged with other people defending some other nation. Jesus said... Before these things occur, the world is going to be in turmoil. But it won't happen immediately. And then he said, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs in the heavens. Now look who's speaking these words. This is Jesus. The Roman Empire is the major world empire at this time. For those of you that know the history of the Roman Empire, within a couple hundred years, the Roman Empire will extend all the way to the northern reaches of Great Britain, to what we commonly call Scotland. Hadrian's Wall will be located there. Attempting to keep the Celts out of the Roman Empire in northern Britain, more than 2,000 miles away. The Roman Empire would extend all the way into what we call modern day Persia or Iran. It would comprise all of the Middle East and all of North Africa. And Jesus is going to say, ah, you know, it's going to get worse. For some people, they're thinking, how much worse can it get? He said, Well, there's going to be earthquakes, famine, pestilences. And so every time we get a new thing, I've had people send me email after email after email. COVID is the end. It's the great pestilence. It's a great pain, and it is a pestilence, to be sure. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Mask wearing is not the type of pestilence Jesus is saying. Social distancing isn't it. He's talking about things that engulf the entire world continually. Throughout time, there's been invasions and famines and pestilence, all kinds of things. It's, It's terrible. A lot of people just simply don't know their history. Africa, the African continent, used to be the cradle of civilization. The Nubians, the Egyptians, northern Africa ruled the world. That's come and gone. And there's been famine and pestilence. Europe was wiped out. During the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, finally the plague comes. We had the Spanish flu at the turn of the last century. Millions of people died. Jesus is talking about something global. He's not talking about these regional things where part of the world gets affected. He's talking about the entire world. There are some conclusions that Jesus makes Verse 12, but before these things, before what things? Before the famines, the pestilences, the earthquakes, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and to the prisons, and you will be brought before kings and rulers for my namesake, notice the reasoning, for their witness of Jesus. Not because they lived in a specific geographical ro- location, not because they were denied certain rights, because Jesus Christ is Lord. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. And therefore, settle it in your hearts and do not meditate beforehand on what you will answer. In other words, expect it. It's going to happen. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom for all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You'll be betrayed even by your parents and brothers and relatives and friends. They'll put some of you to death. And you'll be hated for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will be lost. By your patience, possess your souls. Jesus is saying, in the very last days, you're going to actually be persecuted for real faith in Jesus Christ. Can I just tell you that that's not what's going on right now? Us wearing masks is not a persecution of the church. Wearing masks is for the safety of all the citizens of this country. It's not a persecution of the church. And people that say it is a persecution of the church are frankly not being honest. Because the church isn't uniquely persecuted. I don't know if you've been to a restaurant recently, but everyone's wearing a mask. It's not just us. And it certainly isn't stopping us from praising and praying and teaching the word and gathering together. Amen? But Jesus is saying there's going to be a time when that actually happens. That hasn't happened yet. Selectively, in certain areas of the world, it's very dangerous to be a believer. But Jesus is talking about the whole world. In other words, it's going to be illegal to be a Christian. It is not illegal to be a Christian in the United States. It isn't illegal to be a Christian except in a handful of countries, and even then it's debatable. Jesus is saying, these things must come to pass. So they should be an encouragement to us. As these things start to ramp up, it's like, man, Jesus is coming soon. He might be back today. He might come for his church. And, and as we look at our lives, we should count these things in essence, it's a challenge to get busy about our Father's business. Not sit there and pick on each other and call each other out and you know, try and figure out who's got this and who's got that and who did this and who did that. But rather to join together for the King and for His kingdom. Because time is getting short with a capital S. In other words, what Jesus is saying, you ought to keep track of what time it is, where we are in the the world's final days. Because one day the age of grace is going to run out, church. These declarations of things that are going on in our world that's like, oh, this is the end. Read your Bible. This is not the end. Is the end closer? It absolutely is. This isn't the end. Last time I looked, I could walk right out there on the street corner and preach Jesus all day long. and I'm going to be able to stand out there. The only thing that's going to happen is I'm probably going to need some water. I'm not going to jail. Unless I did that in Iran, I'm probably not going to go to jail most anywhere in the entire world. But we do have some persecutions going on today. I'd strongly encourage you to, if you didn't weren't here with us and haven't watched it yet, watch the message from Thursday night. I'll deal with some tough issues, specifically the issue of abortion from a Christian perspective. How should the church react? Because we should be standing for the Lord during these last days. Because in that sense, we are... Being persecuted. The values that we hold dear are no longer the core of this country. I wish they were, but they're not. So be very careful. And so Jesus concludes this particular section. We'll pick the rest of it up next week. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its destruction is near. Notice what it says, it doesn't say the end is near. The destruction of Jerusalem is near. Guess what happened 40 years later? Flavius Titus came to Jerusalem with the Roman army. Four legions. 24,000 troops. Laid siege to Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And it's still not there. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart depart and let not those who were in the country enter into her. In other words, Jerusalem would be destroyed. That happened. Jesus was giving them a present-day window to say, Jesus said this would happen. He also said these things will happen. If this happened, in other words, the foregone conclusion should be, so will the rest of the things that he says happen. What were they? For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. What all things? Literally all things. The sum, the total of everything that Scripture says about the last days. A woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath. Please circle that word. It's only used in the context of the punishment of evil from God's perspective. It is never used in the context of God's people. What people would this be? The Jewish people who have not yet believed. They haven't yet seen the Messiah who came to them. They have not yet known him In other words, the whole focus of the very last days is actually going to be the Jewish people. God's going to make good on what he said through the Apostle Paul. They'll fall by the edge of the sword, be led away captive into all nations, which by the way they have, it's called the diaspora. Jewish people are scattered all over the globe. And until May 14th 1948, they didn't have a land. So now, for more than 70 years, they've been back in the land. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until, circle that word, until the times of the Gentiles, that would be non Jewish people, are fulfilled. So, this picture of a day that's coming, remember, Luke is a Gentile. And so he's writing a Gentile account of a Jewish message. And he's speaking of a time where God is going to finally complete all of his programs. Finish the age of grace. He's going to come and snatch his church away. He's going to deal with sin. He's going to take care of all the problems that have existed on this earth for far too long. So, what was his message? The temple, when it gets destroyed, would be the beginning of the last days. It's gone. It's never been rebuilt. And the things that your Bible says about the last days have not yet fully happened. So, it's still ahead of us. God has a plan. He's still fully in control. He has a plan for your life. He has a plan for us as a church. He has a plan for all humanity. And in these last days, we should be very busy about our Father's business. And not make problems out of things that don't have eternal weight. But rather focus on the things that will alter the destiny of people for eternity. Let's preach the gospel. Let's teach the word. Let's reach out to nations. Let's be friends. Let's be neighbors. Let's feed people who are hungry. Let's cause people to, to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living while they still have chance to know him personally. Amen? Amen. Would you stand and we'll pray together? If you need prayer after service personally, just simply go to our prayer room. Let's pray and Let's get busy. Plenty of things to do while we await the church, heading home to heaven. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Pray that you would speak into our lives the absolute urgency we we should have in these days. Lord, we'd be busy about things that matter and not concerned and caught up in things that don't. Help us to stay focused on heaven. Lord, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. God, would you watch over the Jewish people? Or we know that one day the entire world is going to come against them. But you will deliver them, Lord. And so we just give you our lives afresh and new for your plans and purposes, God. Make us into a mighty force for you. Help us to preach and teach like we never have before. Give us vision for the future. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.